Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Trump, Inc. from WNYC and ProPublica. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Now that Donald Trump's bid for a second term has been rejected by voters and by courts and by the Electoral College, we're left to consider the future of Trump, his business, and his potential legal exposure. There's been a lot of debate about holding Trump accountable for crimes he may have committed as president. That's not what we're going to talk about today. Instead, we're going to examine the legal hangover stemming from possible wrongdoing by Trump and the Trump Organization. Some of it from possibly illegal acts from even before he was elected president. Donald Trump has been involved in thousands of civil suits. Not long ago, the New York Attorney General found he'd violated New York charity law when he used Trump Foundation funds for political purposes. But though Trump has been repeatedly investigated, he's never been charged with a crime. Now, he might be. The Manhattan District Attorney is investigating Donald Trump, his associates, and his business— Because Trump has gone to extraordinary lengths to prevent the DA from examining his tax returns, there's now a long and public paper trail. We even know some of the specific offenses the DA is considering, like scheme to defraud and criminal tax fraud. So, I mean, are those serious crimes? Well, are they serious crimes? I I wouldn't want to be charged with one. You know, felonies are serious by definition. In this episode, I speak with Adam Kaufman. He used to be in charge of prosecuting these kinds of cases at the Manhattan DA's office. But before we get to that, there's another investigation that's moving along in a rapid clip. A civil suit by the District of Columbia Attorney General, Carl Racine, charging the Trump Organization with breaking charities laws. What this suit really is about is about the president's initial decisions, even before he was sworn in, to begin to profit from what would later be his presidency. Racine spoke with my co-host, Ilya Maritz. First, here's the backstory. Two weeks before Election Day in 2016, Donald Trump and his family brought a throng of reporters to their new hotel in Washington. Hello, everyone. In the historic old post office. It's an honor to stand before you today and officially welcome you to Trump International Hotel and Tower, Washington, D.C. Wearing a cream dress with an asymmetrical neck, Ivanka Trump said her family won a fierce competition to redevelop the building. Then she pivoted to the sales pitch. Behind a backlit onyx facade is the city's largest luxury ballroom. And within the building itself, our guests will discover the most spacious suites in the district, complete with soaring 16 to 24-foot ceilings. A lot happened in the next few weeks. The hotel welcomed guests. Donald Trump won the election in an upset. And Trump's new role in politics converged with his new hospitality business when the Trump inaugural committee booked space in the Trump Hotel. The hotel. Think of an elegant, glass-topped atrium with waiters and guests milling around. When the committee rented space in the ballrooms, the same man, the same family, stood on both sides of the transaction. 
In 2018, I was spending a lot of time researching the money behind the Trump inauguration, the most expensive in history by far. I was collecting documents. I was calling anyone who I thought could explain how the money was spent. And at some point, I was shown emails. Emails that demonstrate how very weird this arrangement between the inaugural committee and the Trump Hotel really was. The initial price quote was more than $400,000 a day. December 17th, 2016, 7.21 p.m. This is Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, chief creative officer for the inaugural celebrations. I wanted to follow up on our conversation and express my concern. Wolkoff addressed this email to Ivanka Trump and a few other key people. She agreed to read the email for this podcast. Please take into consideration that when this is audited, it will become public knowledge that locations were also gifted and costs underwritten to lower rental fees. I understand that compared to the original pricing, this is great, but we should look at the whole context. In my opinion, the max rental fee should be $85,000 per day. Wolkoff recently published a book, Melania and Me, The Rise and Fall of My Friendship with the First Lady. Thank you, Stephanie. Why did you feel that you had to write this email? I just felt it was my responsibility. Um, Truly, as someone who's been doing events for nonprofits for over two decades, I was really concerned about the optics. I didn't think it was right for the Trump family or any of their businesses to be financially profiting from the inauguration. I mean, that is a problem, and it raised uh, alarms. The committee and the hotel finally settled on a price of $175,000 per day. Stephanie Winston Wolkoff was recently deposed by Carl Racine, the attorney general of the District of Columbia. That email is an extraordinarily important piece of evidence because what it shows is that the people responsible for managing the presidential inaugural committee were on notice that they were to not waste the not-for-profit's assets by overcharging it for hotel space, food, and other items. And so that email establishes knowledge and intent to waste and intent to engage in self-dealing. In January 2020, Racine sued the Trump Organization, the Trump Hotel, and the nonprofit inaugural committee. They violated DC's charity laws, he said, by, quote, grossly overpaying for event space. The defendants deny this. It turns out that during inauguration week, another charity, this one not in any way controlled or influenced by the Trumps, also reserved event space at the Trump Hotel. Reverend Mary Turner and I am the hostess of the presidential inaugural prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. While the Trump inaugural agreed to pay a day rate of $175,000, Reverend Turner told me her group contracted to pay a fraction of that. We basically leased the ballroom um, for the cost of $5,000. $5,000. Reserving ballrooms, of course, is not like buying gas on a highway where you know there is a big, transparent market. There's not a standard because the market isn't big enough or transparent enough. And that's what we expect uh, them to say. But what we also know is that in the industry, the more that you use a space, the more concessions 
and or freebies or discounts one gets. And so it is not the norm that the price is much higher for greater use than it is for less use. I know you recently deposed presidential advisor and first daughter Ivanka Trump, and I'd love to read that deposition, but it's not public. Can you tell me anything about how that went? I can tell you that uh, she appeared virtually for the deposition, uh, that she certainly was not combative uh, and was, you know, generally uh, professionally courteous. Unfortunately, that's not the standard for a deposition. One is under oath and you're obliged to tell the truth. Unfortunately, Ms. Trump, after the deposition, tweeted out information that was highly misleading. She wrote, This week, I spent five-plus hours in a deposition with the Democrat D.C. AG's office, where they questioned the rates charged by the Trump Hotel at the inauguration. I shared with them an email from four years ago where I sent instructions to the hotel to charge a fair market rate, see below, which the hotel then did. This inquiry is another politically motivated demonstration of vindictiveness and waste of taxpayer dollars. End of tweet. She suggested that she was the guardian of the gate and she made sure that only the market rate was charged. We are confident that the evidence will show that that's not the truth. Alan Garten, the Trump Organization's chief legal officer, has also said in a statement that Ivanka Trump wanted a fair market rate. And he said her only involvement was connecting the parties. I think you're in a position that is kind of unique in history. You are a prosecutor leading a case against a sitting U.S. president's private business as he is about to leave office. Does it feel as unusual for you on the inside as it looks to us on the outside? Yes, it does. But it feels really strange, weird. It should never happen again. Because what this suit really is about is about the president's initial decisions, even before he was sworn in, to begin to profit from what would later be his presidency. Even before January 20, it was clear that the Trump family, including the president of the United States, sought to profit from monies that were to go to inaugural expenses or for not-for-profit purposes. Can you give me a sense of where this goes next? So we're wrapping up discovery, and then we'll go to a phase where the Trump Inauguration Committee will and the other defendants will ask the court to dismiss the case. We don't believe that that's warranted. If you do the research, and if you stay strong and fight a legal case with him and strongly, the record is replete with lost cases, forced payment, and settlements. My hunch is that that's where we end up here. Where does this case, which is centered around, you know, in the end, not a huge amount of money and not a huge, sprawling, complicated thing. It's actually pretty discreet. It's a pretty small bite that I think many right. people can understand. So where does this case fit in with the broader question of accountability in your mind? 
Well, I think it's a very important precedent uh, to establish that the president of the United States should never, ever seek to profit from his or her office. Indeed, that's why the Office of Attorney General for the District of Columbia also brought the emoluments case. And that's a case, of course, that involved foreign sovereigns plowing money into the Trump hotel, allowing the president thereby to unlawfully profit against and contrary to the Constitution. When I was doing my reporting around the inaugural, particularly like around 2018, I started getting a lot of documents and looking at each of the events and the parties and when they happened and where they happened and trying to sort of line them up and compare. It didn't actually seem to me that very much happened at the Trump Hotel, at least not that many public facing events. <laughs> did you notice that too? You know, I did. And, um, you know, we of course have uh, certain, you know, investigative um, documents and other evidence that really suggest, and this is about as far as I can go, that monies were coming into the Trump Hotel, regardless of whether people were staying there. No, we noticed that too. Uh-huh. Okay, so stay tuned. Yes. We requested comment from the Trump Inaugural Committee, the Trump Hotel, the Trump Organization, and the White House. We did not receive a response from any of them. AG Racine is trying to recoup a little over a million dollars paid to the Trump Hotel. If he wins the case, Racine says, his office will give the money to a worthy charitable cause. After the break, there's another investigation with potential legal jeopardy for Donald Trump, a criminal matter. We'll be right back. We're back. On a steamy August day in 2018, journalists were summoned to a courthouse in Lower Manhattan. The process of the arrest of Michael Cohen is now underway. Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former personal attorney. FBI's got him. They've got him. Was about to make a dramatic move. Four o'clock for a presentment and what we believe uh, will be a plea deal. In the courthouse, Cohen his hair now noticeably graying, his shirt knotted with a gold tie, pleaded guilty to eight felonies, including making hush money payments, quote, in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office for the purposes of influencing an election. The charging documents referred to the candidate as individual one. Everyone knew it was Trump. In other circumstances, Cohen's plea might have led the prosecutors to Trump, but a Justice Department memo said the DOJ couldn't indict a sitting president. It seemed that Donald J. Trump, legal Houdini, had escaped a criminal reckoning again. But that same summer, two blocks north, a different prosecutor's office, the Manhattan DA's office, began its own investigation into possible crimes committed by Donald Trump, his associates, and his business. It was prompted by public reports that certain business transactions in our jurisdiction were possibly illegal. Given those allegations, our office would have been remiss not to follow up. 
This is Carrie Dunn, the general counsel for Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr., speaking to the U.S. Supreme Court in the spring of 2020. There have been no charges filed in this case, and under normal circumstances, we'd know very little about it. But because Donald Trump has been fighting in the courts to keep his business records away from the DA, there are now hours of court hearings and reams of documents that give us a roadmap to the DA's investigation. So we're going to take that roadmap. And with a guide, we're going to try to figure out where the investigation has gone, where it's going, and what it could mean for Trump. Here's our guide. My name is Adam Kaufman. I am an attorney in Manhattan. I'm at the law firm Lewis Bach Kaufman Middlemas. Before that, Kaufman worked at the Manhattan DA's office. I did for uh, about 19 years. The title was Chief of the Investigation Division. In charge of white-collar crimes, corruption, money laundering, fraud. He prosecuted a mortgage fraud ring, perpetrators of a pyramid scheme, international financial crimes. He left the DA's office years ago. So I know absolutely nothing about this investigation. About this investigation. But he knows a great deal about how this kind of investigation works. Here's the setup. After the DA began his investigation into the Cohen payments, public reports on Trump's questionable business practices piled up. The New York Times got his family's old tax records and called some Trump business maneuvers outright fraud. The Washington Post reports the Trump Organization routinely sent lenders multi-page statements of financial condition purporting to describe his properties, debts, and multi-billion dollar net worth that, in fact, were deeply flawed. Mr. Trump is a cheat. And Michael Cohen testifies publicly to Congress. I am giving to the committee today three years of Mr. Trump's personal financial statements. Did the president or his company ever inflate assets or revenue? Yes. Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. Who else knows that the president did this? Alan Weisselberg, Ron Lieberman, and Matthew Calamari. And where would the committee find more information on this? Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them? Yes, and you'd find it at the Trump Org. I asked Kaufman, if you're inside the DA's office and you're doing an investigation, how does all this public activity affect prosecutors' behind-the-scenes activity? Yeah, you know, so as you're going through the litany, I'm thinking to myself, well, how how would that have happened? Um, how would this have unfolded? And, you know, you, you could see, look, I mean, you're talking about looking at the president of the United States. So every decision in this matter is going to cross um, District Attorney Vance's desk. There's just no doubt about it. They're probably getting leads from people. They're probably getting phone calls. They're talking to uh, witnesses. And, you know, it's like they're pursuing one thing and these leads start to open up. And, and it's almost like a, it's almost like a gestalt. Like at some point, there's like enough there there that they're going to broaden and issue this broader subpoena because now it looks like there's multiple reasons to suspect that the Trump organization has engaged in criminal conduct. And at a certain moment, who knows when, you hit a tipping point. 
and you say, you know what, there's enough here. We need to do this. We need to move forward with this investigation and see where it goes. All right, go ahead and issue the subpoenas. This happens in August of 2019. First, the Trump Organization gets a subpoena asking for records about the Cohen business dealings. The DA wants records from June 1st, 2015, so that's right before Trump declared his candidacy, to 9-2018, which is just after Cohen's guilty plea. They tell the Trump Organization they're looking beyond just the Cohen payments. Vance attorney Kerry Dunn described the investigation in an appeals court hearing in September 2020. We have represented that the appellant has been put on notice throughout this litigation that the grand jury's investigation was not limited to Cohen's 2016 payments. The, the office has stated the grand jury's investigation, quote, potential violations of state law, including issues beyond those involved in the Cohen matter. A few weeks after it subpoenas the Trump Organization for the Cohen records, the DA's office subpoenas Trump's accountants, Mazars USA. The subpoena asks, quote, for the period of January 1st, 2011 to the present, with respect to Donald J. Trump, the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust, the Trump Organization, Inc., and a whole bunch of limited liability companies, for tax returns, statements of financial condition, contracts, work papers, communications, etc., etc. This is when Trump sues D.A. Vance in September 2019. He loses and loses again and again and again and again and keeps appealing. All the while, Mazars doesn't have to turn over the records. The election comes and goes, and the case gets stuck at the U.S. Supreme Court for the second time. Vance continues to get documents when he can and to interview witnesses. And because his office keeps filing papers, we get a more and more specific view of what the DA's office is considering. So the DA's office has very helpfully said some crimes it might be looking at, and I will list them. Scheme to defraud penal law, what is it, section 190.65? Is that how you say it? Yep. Okay, so there's that one. Falsification of business records, penal law, 170.10, insurance fraud, 176.15 through 176.30, and criminal tax fraud, 1803 to 1806, among others. So, I mean, are those serious crimes? Well, are they serious crimes? I I wouldn't want to be charged with one. Um, The B felony would be a minimum sentence of one to three years in state prison with a potential maximum of uh, eight and a third to 25 years. So yeah, you're at a B felony, you're talking about a serious crime. At an E felony, you're talking about possibly going to state prison all the same. So, you know, felonies are serious. By definition, (laughs) felonies are serious offenses. So... What do you need to make out a case? I mean, aside from the records, what what else do you need to, to get to an indictment and eventually to a trial? So what separates a crime from a sharp business practice? You know, it gets down, of course, to intent. What is the person's intent? To be prosecuted for a crime, you have to be able to show that the defendant acted with criminal intent. So I think a great example is this. Uh, Mr. Trump quite famously deducted $70,000 for his hair treatment, for uh, getting his hair blown out or, or whatever. It is really <laughs> but, a lot of money but, for one's hair, but anyway. It, it's, it's a lot of hair money. But, you know, you could see someone in good faith saying, well, I'm a TV 
personality and my hair has to look good and that's a business expense. Now, everyone has said, no, that's wrong. You know, the tax experts I've listened to, and I'm, I'm not a tax expert, but they've said, you can't take that as a deduction. It's an improper deduction. But that doesn't necessarily make it a crime. Um, that's different than, for example, setting up dummy companies and moving money to them and calling it a business expense, taking in loans and then channeling it through shell companies to inflate a balance sheet. In those instances, you're acting with an intent to really mislead, an intent to defraud. If you're talking about a criminal tax case, that's really what you're looking for as a prosecutor. And you want to be able to show that very clearly. You, you, you don't want something that's overly convoluted. You want it to boil down to something that you can get up in front of the jury and say, can you believe what this guy did? If you can show, you know, if you can stand up before a jury and say, look, you know, on January 1, they valued this building at $20 million because it was in their interest to have a low valuation. And on January 15th, they valued it at $200 million because they were trying to get a big bank loan. That's a nice, simple, straightforward case. At Trump Inc., we've reported on a number of such schemes. Our ProPublica colleague Heather Vogel got a hold of Trump's property tax filings and found that the income he'd reported to New York tax authorities didn't always match the numbers he'd reported to lenders. The Trump Organization attributed the discrepancies to differences in reporting requirements. This was just one set of numbers deriving from Trump's property tax returns. The DA's office could soon be looking at a whole lot more. So if you're in that office and you get some big stack of Trump documents and you've been trying to get them now for a year and a half and you don't want to dilly-dally because there's a statute of limitations issue, how do you handle that? Just really, how do you do that? So... The district attorney's office has a great group of um, forensic accountants and financial crimes investigators, uh, people who can read a tax return, can read financial papers, can find the weaknesses in them, can find the parts that don't look entirely kosher and focus in on them. I mean, okay, so now we've seen Donald Trump with a stack of tax documents. We don't know if those are his actual tax documents, Trump being Trump, but I assume it's a lot of documents. It seems like, I, I mean, assume it is too. <laughs> so, um. I mean, are we talking months, years? I mean, what's the calculation? No, I think we're talking, you know, a month, two months. I mean, to understand, to find, you know, you don't have to know everything in them, you have to find the places that look suspicious. If you were there, what, what would you be saying to people? You know, go find this thing. This is the thing we need to make out the case. What would the this thing be? Hmm. You know, I, I mean, I thought that the tape recording, tape. listen to me, I sound, I sound my age, um, the digital recording. No, we say of, tape, uh, it's okay. <laughs> we say tape, okay. I thought, you know, Michael Cohen's uh, recording of the conversation about making a payment to uh, one of the women. Yes. You know, that was, I thought, very damning evidence, right? It shows that Mr. Trump himself was involved in that decision-making and in that transaction. When it comes time for the financing, which will be... Listen, what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I think they're going to have to be sort of bare-knuckled 
They're going to have to look at who in the organization or who in the, the sphere of advisors, who has criminal exposure, and they're going to have to try to flip people. Bare knuckled means that like they might be going to some Trump organization executives and saying, you know, it's you're going to go to prison and you're not a young person. I mean, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I, that's probably what they yeah, I, I would think that's what they're going to do. A lawyer for the Trump Organization did not provide a statement to us on a possible indictment by the Manhattan DA or on the charges he is considering. In legal papers, Donald Trump's legal team has said Vance's inquiry is bad faith and an overbroad fishing expedition. Trump's lawyers have stated in response to news reports that there was no fraud or tax evasion by anyone. Ivanka Trump tweeted about Vance's investigation, This is harassment, pure and simple. This inquiry by New York Democrats is 100% motivated by politics, publicity, and rage. They know very well that there's nothing here and that there was no tax benefit whatsoever. These politicians are simply ruthless. So we've talked a lot about Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen is a convicted liar. (laughs) So how do you deal with that if he's, you know, (laughs) your witness? So that's right. That's always, you know, the the prosecutor's lament and all the famous prosecutor's lines. You know, you we didn't choose Mr. Cohen. Mr. Trump chose Mr. Cohen. No, I'd <laughs> that's like a to good have one. We should use that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd like to have uh, my witnesses be priests and nuns, but I don't have. You know, I'm not prosecuting a choir. For most people, the Manhattan DA's office is a TV office. It's made famous by Law and Order. I mean, could you actually envision like Donald Trump being a defendant in this courtroom? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I I, I tell you, I I think. Um, look, I think Sai uh, brought the Weinstein case. You know, he's brought some tough cases and won. As we're recording this, the U.S. Supreme Court has not decided what it will do about Trump's case to block Vance's subpoena. But because the case relies on Trump's status as president, many legal scholars expect the court to clear the way for Vance to ultimately get the documents. There are other Trump legal matters wending their way through the courts. The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, is examining whether Trump's businesses underpaid New York state taxes, a civil violation, by undervaluing assets. This is another inquiry we know about because of Trump's oppositional legal strategy. Eric Trump, one of the people in charge of the Trump Organization during his father's presidency, refused to show up for a deposition. James went to court to force him to appear, and he did. Some details of her investigation became public. Our investigation, for the most part, is civil. And so our investigation will continue um, when Mr. Trump becomes a private citizen. Nothing will preclude our investigation going forward. The investigations don't end there. As Donald Trump becomes a former president, we're left with a tangle of civil suits and criminal probes of him and the people around him. A massive legal hangover. Thank you. 
Federal prosecutors in Manhattan are investigating whether Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, broke lobbying laws in his dealings with Ukraine. That's according Tom, what in the world's going on? Uh, Stephanie, I've just learned that Steve Bannon is in federal custody in New York City at this time. He's been charged in an indictment with four other people uh, alleging fraud. Uh, FBI for arrested Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman on campaign finance-related charges as they attempted to leave the United States. I don't know them. Uh, I don't know about them. I don't know what they do. President Trump's niece, Mary Trump, is accusing him and two of his siblings of cheating her out of millions of dollars. Elliot Broidy is pleading guilty to a back-channel lobbying campaign on behalf of a foreign government. E. Jean Carroll and some reservists also have their two defamation lawsuits that are currently against Donald Trump. And Donald Trump in those lawsuits is saying that you cannot sue... Donald Trump has said the civil suits against him have no merit. Elliot Broidy pleaded guilty to conspiring to violate foreign lobbying laws, but has not been sentenced. Steve Bannon has pleaded not guilty. Rudy Giuliani has not been charged with a crime and has denied any wrongdoing. This episode was produced by Catherine Sullivan with sound design by Jared Paul. Nick Varshever was the editor. Hannes Brown wrote our theme music and additional music. Matt Collette is the executive producer of Trump, Inc. Emily Botine is the vice president for original programming at WNYC. And Stephen Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. I'm Andrea Bernstein. I'm Ilya Meritz. Thank you for listening. Thank you.